the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Each man's life touches so many other lives. When he isn't around, he leaves an awful hole, doesn't he? Welcome to What a Life with Paul Batura. Paul is a best-selling author, writer, Fox News contributor, and vice president of communications at Focus on the Family. This is a show about the extraordinary value of every life. It's a show about movers, shakers, and culture shapers. And now, here's your host, Paul Batura. Well, thanks for the introduction, Dr. Bill, and welcome to the program. Special thanks to the Salem Media Network for producing and distributing it, and to Matt, who is engineering on the other side of the glass. Well, it's Super Bowl weekend, and we have a super show for you. It's not about football, but we're talking with a gentleman who has spent his entire professional and his personal life metaphorically moving the ball down the field, and who has played extraordinary defense on behalf of Coloradans and the American people. My guest today is former Colorado Springs Mayor John Southers. And uh, John is a local boy, as they say, who made good. In addition to serving eight years as our city's mayor, he's been district attorney, U.S. attorney, and state attorney. Mayor Southers is out with a great book. It's a memoir. It's called All This I Saw and Part of It I Was. Now, that's an interesting title that actually goes back to the city's founding. We're going to talk about that. But Mr. Mayor, Your Honor, it is great to have you on the program. Paul, I'm delighted to be with you. And by the way, I love sports analogies. So I, I love the Super Bowl uh, ah, connection well, there. I know you're a sports guy. You're a baseball fan. I mean, you played as a kid. I um, did play baseball. I uh, was an all-city baseball player many moons ago here in Colorado Springs. And there's one of the uh, kind of more humorous chapters is titled, uh, Even the Goose Couldn't Strike Me Out. And of course, <laughs> that has to do with uh, Goose Gossage. Yeah. Uh, he, I popped out, but I didn't strike out. One of my great regrets in life uh, since I've been in town, I was running Pikes Peak one morning and I was coming down and the goose was coming up and I passed him and I was startled to see him. And I thought, wait a second, I just passed Goose Gossage and I did not go back and try and grab his ear because he's kind of a private person. He is a bit of a private person. He doesn't like to talk much and I've tried to reach out to him. I've not been able to connect with him yet, but, uh, now, he's a little uh, younger than you? No, he's the exact same age. Uh, ah. we, we graduated from high school the same year. We played in the city uh, all-star game the same year, 1970. I went to college, and he went off to make a fortune in the major leagues. And he, and he was at Wasson High. Exactly. Okay, that's right. Wow. Did you ever actually uh, bat against him? Uh, yeah, and that's the uh, episode I talk about oh, yeah, in, in the game. Okay. And uh, as I say, I pop, popped up to the first baseman, uh, and I was... Uh, pretty disappointed at the time, but 30 years later, I was bragging to my daughters <laughs> that even the goose couldn't strike me out. That is great. That's great. Well, let's talk about, we're going to talk about your life, and it's an extraordinary life, and you you capture it well. I mean, this book, you took your time doing this uh, over 12 years. Uh, probably about 12 years. Um, there was a period of time uh, I worked in Denver uh, during the week. I was the uh, U.S. attorney for four years, and I was the attorney general of Colorado for 10. We had a condominium up there. We never moved to uh, 
uh, to Denver, always uh, stayed in Colorado Springs, but I didn't come back every night during the week. And I would get back from uh, functions, uh, you know, uh, one or two functions after work, and sometimes it'd be uh, uh, seven thirty, eight o'clock, and uh, I would uh, sit down and write. And I uh, put this together over many years, and then, of course, the last uh, chapter having to do with uh, being a mayor, uh, put together in the last six months of my uh, tenure as mayor, and the uh, a book came out last summer, shortly after I left office. Yeah, I have to. I had laughed out loud reading where you said you're kind of a. I mean, this is you speaking. Kind of a boring person. I I consider myself <laughs> a nerd. Yeah, no question about it. Uh, I uh, uh, studied my brains out in in uh, college. I, as I say in the book, my my father was dead at that point in time. Uh, I got a full uh, tuition, room, and board scholarship at the University of Notre Dame, but it was contingent on me making the dean's list every semester. Uh, so the stakes were really, really high. Yeah. And so I didn't take any chances. I know. And you mentioned South Bend is a great uh, town for studying, given the, the weather and all of that. Um, well, let's go to the title of the book. I think people are intrigued by it. I was when I first saw it. Explain where that came from. The title, All This I Saw and Part of It I Was. The city of Colorado Springs was founded on July 31st, 1871. They have a little ceremony uh, at the corner of what is now uh, Pikes Peak and Cascade Avenues on what is now uh, the southeast corner. In fact, there's a plaque there that commemorates that's where the founding took place. There are pictures of uh, the event, and there's not a tree in sight. You can, in the maybe in the distance, you might see a tree on Pikes Peak or something like that. But this was a high desert plain. Yeah. And a guy by the name of Robert Cameron had been hired. Uh, by Palmer. Matter of fact, he'd hired him away from a guy by the name of Meeker, who was developing Greeley, Colorado, to come down and start building uh, Colorado Springs. Palmer was out of town, so Cameron gave a little speech to the hundred or so people that were there on July 31st, 1871. And it's remarkably prophetic. I, w- I would encourage people to get hold of the speech. He talks about all the beauty that they can see, Pikes Peak, obviously. They could see the Garden of the Gods, Monument Valley, and the creek running down it and all that sort of thing. And then uh, he talked about the climate and pre- uh, predicted that people would come from all over the world to visit Colorado Springs because of its scenery and climate and the industry that would be here. It would attract intelligent, cultured people. And uh, his last line was to all of the people there, uh, said, uh, in decades to come, uh, you can say to yourself, all this I saw, and part of it I was. And when I read that, I, I thought, you know, that's kind of me, 72 years later, having lived uh, and grown up in Colorado Springs, been here all my life. I've witnessed about half of the city's history. Mm. And I'm saying, uh, looking back on uh, decades, not only in Colorado Springs, but in Colorado and some of my national involvements, and saying, all this I saw, and I was lucky enough to be a part of a little bit of it. Well, you're being very humble. I, I would go a little farther. I would say that you, you know, good leaders cast a vision. They see things that other people don't. They can envision a city that some might think a pipe dream. And and in your tenure as mayor, you've done that. Uh, you you kind of cast that vision, and many of us were excited by it, and we're seeing the fruits of that. Whether it's the Olympic training center downtown, whether it's Widener Field. 
whether it's the great development that's done responsibly, that's done within the, you know, keeping the, the terrain and keeping the beauty of the city. And, and, you know, all of us are deeply indebted to you for that. Well, thank you, Paul. I really do think uh, the guy that should get a lot of credit, the real visionary was William J. Palmer. Hmm. You know, he came through here, he was building a railroad, uh, basically he thought he was going to build a railroad from Cheyenne to Santa Fe, maybe on to Mexico City. And he looked up at uh, snow-covered Pikes Peak in April of, I think, 1869 and said, oh my gosh, this would be an incredible place to build a city. And historically speaking, most cities that survive are built at deep water ports, the confluence of rivers, uh, near mines or, or the end of a cattle drive, something that you know makes them develop economically. We're one of the few large cities in America, and we're now the 38th largest city in America. That is basically where we are because of pure aesthetics. Uh, he was told by Mr. Meeker, you don't have enough water down there. You can't build a city. And he said, watch me. Hmm. I'll, I'll bring the water in. And we've been bringing the water in ever <laughs> since. A lot of vision has gone in to building this city. Yeah, we kind of live and die on some of the weather we get, and, and we've had a good stretch here the last summer was a good one especially if you like a green lawn you bet that's been good well let's talk about your life and i want to start you start your book kind of with a almost uh, i feel like it reads almost like a mystery novel let me just read the line that grabbed me you said the publicly issued birth certificate does not reflect my actual parentage in fact the woman who actually gave birth to me never laid eyes on me instead i was quickly taken from the delivery room and immediately became a ward of Catholic Charities of the Archdiocese of Denver. That's correct. Uh, I was uh, uh, born to my natural, uh, my birth mother was from Cincinnati, Ohio. Uh, she found herself pregnant. I think the, un, the uh, unusual uh, part about it is that she was 26 years old, and my father was 26. You know, most out-of-wedlock pregnancies, you're, the, the people are younger. Uh, this is a situation where I think they'd known each other before the war. He'd come back from the war. They'd resume the relationship. I don't know what caused them to decide not to get married, uh, but they did not. And as was somewhat typical of the situation at the time, the family um, decided to send her out to Colorado. They made a connection through some priests that they knew. Uh, her parish priest knew a, a priest in Denver and made an arrangement for her to come out and work. Uh, uh, for the Denver Catholic uh, Register newspaper. And uh, she wrote articles and uh, was supervised by an editor and spent uh, the summer out here uh, in the fall. And I was born in uh, October of 1951 yeah. at Mercy Hospital in Denver. And as I understood, as you wrote, the cover story for some of her family even was that she had gone to Europe for the summer. Yeah, when I wound up um, years later through an amazing set of circumstances, which I explain in the book, learning her identity, I wound up c communicating with her brother, who is a, a prominent physician in uh, Cincinnati. And, uh, you know, believe it or not, you know, I called this guy and I said, uh, um, you know, are you related to Gene Fisher? And he says, yes, I am. Is there a problem? Uh, through an amazing set of circumstances, he knew what he was talking to the district attorney of Colorado. A little intimidating. Yeah, exactly. And I said, well, there's no problem, but let me tell you a story that I had learned through a connection that I met in Denver uh, that uh, uh, this woman was, uh, his sister was my mother, and I'd learned her identity. I did not want to contact her directly. 
I thought this would be the appropriate way to do it. Uh, he was a sophisticated guy, a physician, and, uh, you know, he could talk to her and see if she wanted to have any communication. And he told me at that time, he said, well, I just want to let you know that uh, we're a pretty close family. None of the kids had any idea hmm. that our sister had a child out of wedlock. It went to the grave with our parents. And he says, as I think about it, we all thought that uh, our sister was in uh, uh, Europe traveling at the time. Hmm. And, I mean, that the I, I've written about adoption. And we, My wife, Julie, and I are blessed to be the adoptive parents of three boys. And one thing that we've been counseled from the very beginning is that, and I've experienced this in my research of other adoptees, is that there is always a curiosity about your family of origin. You love, hopefully, you love your adoptive family. But you're going to be curious. You know, uh, yes, Paul, I think that's true. But uh, let me uh, let me credit my uh, adoptive parents. Uh, they were, you know, my father was, uh, I think, 44 when I adopted. My mother was 37. I'm not even sure they qualify through some agencies today. But he'd gone off to the war and everything like that. They were unable to have children. He came back from the war. They settled in Cower Springs. They adopted my sister and... 1946, they adopted me in 1951. They told us we were adopted as soon as you could rationally deal with the concept. And we not only we celebrate our birthdays, but we also celebrate our adoption days. We always went out to dinner. And they, they said, you know, this is the most important day of our lives mm. when we adopted you. And uh, that gave you a, a feeling of belonging that I gave them a, a great deal of credit. And even though they died when I was relatively young, my father died when I was 15, and my mother died when I was uh, 22, I believe, I had, uh, you know, I, I had no notion at that point in time to search out my uh, birth parents. Are you curious? Perhaps. But I really, uh, that was not, not in the cards. But as I explained in this book, I mean, this, this series of things starts happening, uh, and my wife just says, John, you need to respond to this because there's a certain destiny about it. And lo and behold, I wind up running, uh, talking to this woman who was an editor at the Denver Catholic register and who supervised by birth mother, Julie Boggs, right? That's right. And that's how I learned, uh, my birth mother's identity. And, uh, at that point in time, I felt if nothing else, uh, I'd like her to know that the decision she made at that point, uh, what, 40 years ago, uh, really turned out very, very, very well. For yeah. Me. I'm Paul Batura. This is uh, What a Life, Lessons from Legends. We're talking with uh, former Colorado Springs Mayor John Southers about his memoir, All This I Saw and Part of It I Was. And we're talking about his remarkable uh, adoption story. Um, we're gonna, I want to go back to your childhood a little bit. People who are listening locally here will be fascinated by some of your memories of the Springs. But just to kind of put a ribbon on it, so you, you, you reach out to your birth mom's brother, which would be your birth uncle. Right. And um, there is kind of this conversation. And, and uh, what ultimately did your birth mom decide through her brother to communicate to you? Um, she decided, first of all, she was very traumatized that I had gotten this information. She said she'd based her whole life on the fact this was a closed adoption. Mm-hmm. I would never le- learn her identity. Um, but when she kind of got over that, uh, she and, uh, my uncle decided, uh, that, uh, any contact would probably be somewhat problematic. She was married. Her husband did not know I exist. 
She had six children that did not know that I existed. And while they probably could have dealt with it, I'm not sure her husband could have dealt with it really well. And her decision was that she did not want to have any contact. And I was very respectful of that. Uh, I understood it. And uh, I was respectful of it. And uh, uh, we moved on down the line. Not, not to turn all Dr. Phil on you or something, but how did that make you feel? You know, I under, as I say, uh, I understood it. And I went into this. That, that would be a real possibility. Uh, she had probably built uh, quite a life for herself. And, you know, she had six kids. Um, it turned out that her father was kind of a, a rags-to-riches kind of guy. He had uh, uh, migrated from northern Kentucky to Cincinnati, got in the insurance business, wound up with his own insurance agency, and it was a pretty prosperous family. They all went to Xavier University and all that sort of thing. And uh, uh, so... You know, I just, um, I was prepared that that might happen. And so I, a lot of people say, did you feel dejected or rejected or something? No, I really didn't. I understood that. And you're in your 40s by now. Yeah, that's and, exactly right. And you're, I mean, you're busy, you're living your life. I'm a life district and, attorney. Yeah. Um, my life is not all black and white. Uh, I live in a gray world. of, And so I uh, I, I dealt with it just yeah. fine. I, I talking about your adoptive parent or your adoptive parents. And uh, I, I just loved, I kind of fell in love with them as I read the book. I mean, your father was Charles de Gaulle's dentist during world war two. Exactly right. He was a classic, you know, they talk about the greatest generation. My father was 34 years old. Uh, they were work, working on a bar in the basement with uh, his uh, brothers-in-law. Uh, when Pearl Harbor was announced and he went down the next day and enlisted and he got a notice to report to some place called Camp Carson, Colorado. He'd never been West of Mississippi. <laughs> uh, Fort Carson, by the way, was built in a month and a half right after uh, Pearl Harbor. And he was told to show up in uh, uh, early February of 42 here. He took a troop train from Chicago. He got off at the Sierra Madre state Madre station, the Rio Grande, Station. He got on a bus, went out to Carson. Uh, he called my wife. He didn't know how he, long he'd be there, but he knew it'd be some time. It turns out they were training for the invasion of North Africa, which did not take place till November of uh, 42. So he knew he was going to be around for a while, and he said, you need to come out here. He says, this is the most beautiful place I've ever seen. She came out here, and she stayed, and I get a big kick out of this, she stayed at the Buffalo Lodge in Manitou Springs. Paul, it's still there. It's still there, yeah. It is still there. It's a, bic- <laughs> it's a bicycle resort. And they traveled, and I've got family film of them traveling all over the Gold Camp Road and all this kind of stuff. And they made a deal. They said uh, if he survived the war, they'd move to Colorado Springs. He got sent home from northern Italy in uh, forty-five with tuberculosis, recovered at Fitzsimmons in Denver, and they did exactly what they said they were going to do. They moved to... Uh, Cower Springs in 46. I have the phone book. He was the seventh dentist in Colorado Springs and uh, uh, built a little house very close to the entrance of North Cheyenne Canyon. And I grew up there and wound up selling the house after my mother's death in 1974. Wow. Yeah, you and I have something in common. My my father uh, grew up in Brooklyn and I grew up on Long Island in New York, but my dad got stationed out at Camp Carson. He was a little bit. uh, younger than your dad, he was stationed in nineteen, just right, right when you were born, 50, in the mid early fifties. 
but he fell in love with Colorado Springs. Right. And so I grew up hearing all these romantic stories about how great the Springs was. And his brother actually moved to Denver. And so uh, it became ironic that when my mom died, my father moved in with us and he kind of went full circle. He came in and spent his last years of his life here, here in the Springs. So uh, a great childhood. I mean, growing up with supportive parents, you very active. I love the fact that your parish priest, Father Michael Harrington, right, uh, baptized you, and then years later wound up officiating at your wedding. Exactly right, and uh, I think he baptized one or two of our daughters, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah, uh, yeah, he was a big fixture in my life. Uh, Irish immigrant. Uh, he because he had tuberculosis. He came over from Ireland and, and when he was 19 years old from a town called Glen Gareff. He wound up going to St. Thomas Seminary in Denver, and they put him on a little mission, which is now Pauline Chapel. Uh, out beautiful, the right behind the Beautiful, Broadmoor. beautiful place. Yeah. Uh, and he had just been built. Mrs. Penrose had built it. And so they put him there, and he befriended Mrs. Penrose. And she had converted to Catholicism and started giving a lot of money away. Uh, so if you know anything about the history, Paul, uh, chances are that Spencer Penrose himself would not have been nearly as philanthropic as he became, <laughs> but for the influence of Mrs. Penrose. Our wives can have big influence. That's exactly us. right. And it's because of her that Penrose Hospital exists. That St. Mary's uh, grade school uh, existed to become part of uh, St. Mary's High School before it moved, built the grade school at uh, St. Paul's Church and all that sort of thing. And uh, so Harrington wound up being left uh, by the uh, archbishop at uh, uh, that parish for his entire life because of his uh, fr- friendship with uh, Mrs. Penrose. Wow. So, you, I mean, talk about the influence the church had on your life as a young boy. I mean, you're in a in grade school, you're going to church, serving in your church, I'm sure. Yeah. And, you know, it, it's fascinating to me because I run across a lot of people. And let's face it, there's a lot of fallen away Catholics in this world. And some of them went to Catholic school and don't... Um, Look at the experience very favorable. The, oh, we memorized the Baltimore Catechism and all that kind of stuff. And uh, the they remember the preparation for sacraments and things like that. I just have a whole different reaction to it. I felt very, very fortunate to be exposed to, first of all, the whole, at that time, of course, the all the teachers were nuns. They were incredibly dedicated people. Uh, they were pretty pretty academic people. I had a great... Uh, uh, grade school education, particularly in writing and grammar and uh, all that sort of thing, uh, oral advocacy. And so I, I just have a really good, positive experience uh, uh, with the whole thing. And I wound up, as it turned out, the University of Colorado Law School was the first public school I ever walked into. I went to St. Mary's High School here and went to University of Notre Dame. Mm. Sister Georgetta, huge Sister influence Georgetta. on your life. Huge, huge. Sister Giorgetto uh, taught Latin at St. Mary's High School. And this is, uh, I'm told that like in the 1930s, she'd been the principal of St. Mary's High School. But when I arrived in 1966, she's about 80 years old. She teaches Latin. And she teaches the highest class of Latin students based on entrance examinations. I was fortunate to be in it. Uh, She was about, not only was she 80 years old, she was about 4 foot 11. So to compensate for her height, her desk was on a platform in front of the uh, classroom. And 
she wrote down all the students' names on index cards. The boys by their last name, girls by their first. And it was a Socratic method. She'd call on you, give you a couple seconds to answer, and if you didn't answer, she'd call the next card. But she was constantly shuffling the cards. So you couldn't relax because you could you be never called knew on when again. your name would come up. That's exactly right. Not only was she a Latin scholar, but she was a uh, Roman history scholar, and she would intermix Latin instruction with, and she spent a lot of time in Rome with Roman history. My father had died in the summer of my freshman year, uh, the most traumatic event of my life, just uh, died of a heart attack. I think he was doomed by genetics. He was 59. His dad had died at 59. His grandfather died at 59. Hmm. There was no bypasses then or anything like that was very health conscious, but it was genetics. And I was very traumatized. Uh, when I went back, had Latin the following year, I just, she told this story that had an incredible impact on me. She talked about uh, what was called a triumph when the Roman conquerors would come back to Rome after a foreign conquest. And the heroes of that particular conquest would be on horse-drawn chariots, uh, one to a chariot, but there would be a slave whose job it was to stand behind them and whisper in their ear, seek transit gloria mundi, which means thus passes the glory of the world. To remind them that the interests of Rome were paramount, uh, fame was fleeting, all that sort of thing. I'm Paul Batura. We're talking with former Colorado Springs Mayor John Southers. And uh, hang on right after the break for the second part of our conversation. Welcome back. I'm Paul Batura. This is What a Life, Lessons from Legends, Super Bowl Sunday edition. And uh, boy, we have a special treat today. We're talking with former Colorado Springs Mayor John Southers, who has a great memoir. It's called All This I Saw and Part of It I Was. Uh, Mayor Southers, I presume this is available locally on Amazon? You can get it uh, on Amazon. I think there's still copies at uh, Poor Richard's. I know it has been available through Barnes & Noble. Easiest way, frankly, is uh, uh, Amazon. Yeah. Uh, speaking of poor Richards, you served, uh, you know, with Richard Scorman. He's kind of a character here in he, Colorado Springs. What are your reflections on him? He is a bit of a character. Um, Richard and I are on different planets politically, <laughs> and uh, we both appreciate that and both acknowledge that. Uh, but we've always worked together well because uh, we've always had the love of Colorado Springs at heart. And uh, Richard, you know, uh, contributed fantastically to some of the programs that have ensured that we have a great uh, park system in Colorado Springs. And uh, while I had other things uh, that I was, you know, a lot more supportive than he may have been of the military and some of the economic development, we all we shared, um, you know, concerns and and love for the city. And I... uh, I got along great with Richard. Yeah, I, I love I mean, that's modeling how to get along with people that are on different planets. I mean, yeah. we all live in neighborhoods. Don't you wish we did more of that today? Amen. Oh, golly. A- amen. I did want to say earlier, the first half of the program, you, you were kind of being self-deprecating, saying how boring you were. Uh, that's, of course, exaggerated. But I do think that many of us would be eager for boring politicians in office, people who are less dramatic and willing to just do the job. Yeah, yeah. I, Paul, my test whenever I meet a young person that uh, comes in or any person that comes in says I want to get in public office, what I'm always zeroing in on is what's the real reason? Do they want to be somebody or they don't want to do something? 
And there's too many people in politics that just want to mm. be somebody. And it reflects in how they approach the job. Uh, and uh, we need more people who have a skill set. They've been successful in life. They're willing to step forward and contribute uh, you know, some of that knowledge and ability they've uh, acquired uh, to the, to the uh, art of politics. Yeah, yeah. And I think that applies, of course, not just to politics. It applies to whatever you're doing. Exactly. In, in, uh, whether you're in, in your family or in your regular work, um, for sure, in your personal relationships. We, before we went to the break, we were talking about Sister Georgetta and the influence she had. Uh, a small woman, but a mighty influence. Yeah, she told this story about uh, Roman conquerors and that a slave would whisper in their ear, seek transit glory mundi, thus pass the glory of the world to remind them of, you know, life was short. Uh, you have to be focused on something other than your own well-being. And uh, Paul, I think it was the combination of the fact that my father just died and that it was a compelling story, and I was very interested in history, that made a huge impression on me. And uh, a couple of years later, when I graduated from uh, uh, Notre Dame, I, or I, from St. Mary's High School, I'd just been awarded a full scholarship, and I was running out the door at the graduation ceremony to get out to the city all-star baseball game. And the last time I ever saw uh, Sister Georgetta, she looked me in the eye and said, Remember, John, seek transit glory Monday. And I never forgot that. And uh, January of 1989, I, I told the story to my family and friends. In January of 1989, I was being sworn in for my first political office as a district attorney in Colorado Springs. And my sister, God lover, had uh, taken the time to do a needlepoint that said, Seek Transit Gloria Mundi. Paul, uh, if you go down to my law office today, that needlepoint's on the wall right next to the door, and it's been next to the door on every office that I've occupied mm. in my career as a constant reminder to me. I like to describe it this way, a constant reminder to me that today's headlines are tomorrow's fish wrapping. <laughs> and don't get too caught up in it. Be, be concerned about making the right decisions and not the most popular decisions. Wow, that's, that's great. I mean, I know in the book you talk about Arthur Brooks and talking about resume virtues versus... Uh uh, what's the other one? I forget what the opposite of, uh, of course, the, the prevailing virtues, the ones that you want people to That's right. oh, um, oh, uh, eulogy virtues. That's exactly right. right. You, you, you know, uh, at your funeral, you want people to be talking about how honest uh, and uh, you were and how, what great integrity you have, as opposed to the fact that you graduated from Harvard. Yeah. I have to ask you, we've talked about Notre Dame a little bit. Um, you were there in the 1970s. Um, or so late 1970-74. Okay. So we had on the program months ago, coach Lou Holtz, uh, you know, of course he was a little bit before your time at the Act school, but no, he was after my time after your time. Excuse yeah, me. That's, that's right. right. Yeah. But, um, father Ted, father Ted, legendary figure, uh, you know, became a bit of a interesting political guy, but, uh, a huge shadow at the university. What are your memories of him? Uh, let me be quite frank about it. In the, in the four years I was there, he had become a huge public figure. And uh, he was, you know, on the Civil Rights Commission. Uh, he, he didn't see him around campus very much. Hmm. He was in Washington, D.C. He was, uh, uh, you know, uh, on the Civil Rights Commission. He was on a Vatican Commission on Nuclear Energy and all that sort of thing. Uh, so you got an occasional glimpse of him in the 
the mass coming back to school and all that kind of stuff. And he was, you know, he, he did walk around the campus and uh, uh, he was accessible. Uh, but I didn't have a lot of personal time with Father Ted. Okay. So uh, the movie Rudy, uh, as a Notre Dame fan, as a Catholic kid growing up, I cried at that movie. Oh, I love the movie. Did you like it? I mean, oh, I did, love did you Rudy. feel, I mean, it was, again, that was done a little, of course, it was filmed long after you graduated, but it was kind of capturing that, that era, the 1970s, a little bit. That's right. Exactly. Uh, it, it uh, and I, my, I, one of my daughters went to Notre Dame. And it had come out soon before uh, she went to Notre Dame, and uh, I, you know, I was hoping she wasn't going there just because her dad went there. And I remember she was going back for her second semester, and was leaving the next day. And I went downstairs, and I caught her watching the movie Rudy, and I could see tears streaming down her eyes. And I said, "Okay, she's part of the deal. Now. Yeah, she's she, God, she, country, Notre Dame. You know, <laughs> she bought into it. She bought into it." Well, let's, so you graduate Notre Dame, you're back in the Springs, you're working uh, in government. Um, I always like to talk about, because our, our spouses play such an oversized role in our lives and the influence they have is, uh, you can't even put into words. Janet, you, you kind of almost didn't call her. Tell that story. You, you were oh, kinda, how I met her, you Yeah, because you were kind of like, uh, I'm not into it. I'm not a blind date kind of yeah, here, guy. Here's what happened. I had bro- broken off an engagement, interesting, uh, Paul. Um, and I was home for the summer, um, uh, selling the house. My mother had died and, uh, working at uh, shepherd citations, I think, a, a legal job. Uh, they were bought by Lexus Nexus. I yeah, think, right? exactly. Right. Yeah. And, uh, my aunt, uh, who's a friend of the plant nurse at, at, uh, Hewlett Packers worried about me and, and wants me to have some social life or something like that. So. She calls me and says, you know, I talked to Mary Nittman, and Mary gave me the name of three uh, girls out at uh, Hewlett-Packard. She says they're all really smart ladies. They're tennis players. I know you play tennis, and they're, and they're Catholics. And I said, Aunt Joe, yeah, I was a little offended. Uh, you know me. I'm not the kind of guy that uh, hangs around bars looking for dates. I don't, you know, call up strange women and things like that. She said, John, just take down these names, and if you ever need a, a tennis game, call one of them. <clears throat> matchmaker, matchmaker, make the That's exactly. A couple of weeks later, Friday night, I'm, uh, I'm uh, mowing the lawn, and I really did want to play tennis that weekend. And so I go in, and here's the funny part of it. The first name on the list is a long Italian name, <laughs> and I'm not sure I can pronounce it correctly. So I call the second one on the list. Paul, uh, that poor girl. That poor girl. I've been married to her for 48 years. <laughs> That's great. And uh, you were married pretty soon after? Uh, let me see. We met in June, like the first week in June, and we were married May 21st the following year. And you went on, I love this, you went on a bicentennial honeymoon. Yeah. Uh, talk about that. Well, it reflects what, what nerdish people we are. Uh, most people, you know, go to a Caribbean resort or something. It was the Bicentennial of the United States, 1976. We went to Washington, New York, uh, Boston, and Philadelphia. That's great. And, uh, you know, it was, uh, it was great. And I think back, uh, you know, going into, and I think one of the things I talk about when my mother, after my father died, my mother had a convention. She worked for the American Numismatic Association. She had a convention in D.C. That was the first time I'd ever stepped in the White House. Every first time I ever stopped in the Supreme Court, and I just wish that uh, she um, 
would have been around long enough. Uh, you know, I wound up spent a lot of time in the White House. I wound up arguing in the United States Supreme Court. I was plaintiff in one of the major cases in the United States Supreme Court. And I always think about that initial tour that we had. Um, no notion that it would be a big part of my life. Yeah, little did you know you'd be yeah. back in, yeah. in, in a professional capacity. So, you know, reading through your book is sort of like reading through the, a little bit like reading through the archives of the Gazette. Uh, you know, I see names that ring a bell and, and oh, that I remember that case. And, um, but I also kind of had a little bit of a heavy heart reading some of it because you dealt with some major sad crime. I mean, like, I just wonder how does it, I mean, you're an optimistic, upbeat, you know, visionary guy. How do you survive that many years in prosecution and, in putting bad guys behind the bars without losing hope in humanity. I love being a, a prosecutor. I, I figured out in law school that philosophically um, that's where I belonged. Um, you know, I obviously I, I understand and respect the need for the defense function, and all that kind of stuff. But I got so much um, uh, satisfaction out of vindicating the interests of victims and the public at large. And, the DA represents the public, and it's your job to do justice, uh, not to just get convictions, but to do justice in, in whatever that means in the particular case. And I love the function, and I understood that part of that was going through some pretty eye-opening experiences. I spent a lot of time at uh, uh, some very, very gory uh, crime scenes. <laughs> kind of. Fact, I mentioned the fact that Joe Kinda... And I, in uh, Joe Kenda is now somewhat sure. of an international figure. Uh, he was smart enough to make money off of it. Uh, <laughs> and I, uh, but I, I just always understood that, yeah, there's a real darkness out there. Uh, and, uh, but somebody's got to take it on. And I, I, I derived a lot of satisfaction from it. And I never let it uh, overtake my personal life. You know, I always, uh, uh, made sure the kids were isolated enough from it that they could deal with it as they grew up and in an appropriate sort of fashion and yeah. things like that. I'm talking with uh, former Colorado Springs Mayor John Southers. I'm Paul Batura. This is What a Life, Lessons from Legends. Uh, Mayor, you talk about uh, shielding your family, and yet you know your daughter asks you about a headline in the paper that's accusatory of you. You can't shield them from everything. No, you can't. Uh, and in that particular instance, uh, um, my little, our youngest daughter, uh, was reading the newspaper and saw a headline that said, uh, parents accuse Southers of being a racist. And, uh, I was the district attorney and a group of young people, uh, mostly high school students, some of them star, uh, athletes had, uh, believe it or not, cornered a GI on the corner of, uh, I think it was Cascade and, uh, Pikes Peak or maybe a block over and beat him to death. And uh, I, uh, you know, I pursued that case and a lot of the parents, most of the kids were minority uh, kids. And uh, a lot of the parents were uh, happy about the fact I prosecuted them in uh, adult court, but I felt very, very strongly about how grievous a crime this was. And you had to deal with uh, situations like that. And, and my, my wife, you know, I, I tell the story about uh, I'm in Mexico City. Uh, she's home alone. Our kids are long out of the house. And Tom Clements, the head of the Department of Corrections, gets assassinated. And I had a connection with that. I had just convinced him 
not to let a guy out of prison and, and exchange him with uh, Saudi Arabia. And there was a notion that that may be why he was murdered. And so, uh, you know, they had to take my wife out of the home at, uh, in the middle of the night. Mm. Uh, and we had 24-7 uh, uh, security for, you know, four or five months. That's, those things aren't easy. You know, uh, it's not fun. Uh, my wife always made the best of it by making sure she took a couple dozen cookies out to the police officers every mm. evening that had to spend the whole night out there. But uh, I, I tell that story to tell you that it's not all... You know, the very unglamorous side. There's of a very, very unglamorous side of public service. You know, we're living in a moment right now where people do have an elevated sense of fear, concern. I mean, Colorado Springs, I think, is still relatively safe. But people who are listening to this somewhere else, I mean, there are cities that have seen huge spikes in crime. Um, there aren't easy solutions to these problems. They often develop over time. What's your take on it, given the career that you've lived and when you look at these national headlines, what can be done? Well, um, Paul, we need to stop electing uh, prosecutors that uh, of George Soros type that think there ought to be no consequence for what they call poverty co- crimes, uh, you know, stealing up to $1,000 from Walmart or something. Uh, uh, the vast, vast majority of those people aren't doing it because of poverty. Uh, and uh, we, our, our Colorado legislature has just done some incredible things. I mean, they were so uh, determined to reduce the prison population, and they've reduced it by 23% in the last decade mm-hmm. by reducing crimes, the consequences, making it easier to get out on parole. But the fact of the matter is there's a correlation, and crime's gone up 48%, and there's a clear correlation, but a lot of people aren't, aren't recognizing it. And I give me an hour and I'll, I'll describe it for you. There's a clear correlation between how we deal with uh, crime and what the results are on the street. Yeah. I mean, we can, uh, you know, we, we laud our law enforcement officials. They are doing yeoman's work in a very t- difficult environment, but they need support. They do. They need a lot of support and not just cookies. They, they need obviously to be well paid, but they need to be able to be backed up by uh, legislation and, and be able to actually enforce the, uh, the yeah. crimes that are being committed. And in my opinion, we've gone so overboard in reaction to uh, situations that are so limited and so extreme, uh, and all of law enforcement has paid a price for it in terms of public support, and that's very, very unfortunate. You've had, you know, again, reading through your book, you have um, some remarkable stories. I mean, the fatal attraction case that predates me moving here from New York but that put you kind of on the national radar. I mean, a sad story about a, a lover's quarrel. And uh, what do you remember about that case? Well, the Hood and Reality case is a, a very big, uh, uh, you know, when you talk about the most high-profile murders in Colorado Springs, people who lived here a long time are going to talk about that case. Uh, evangelical guy, a successful real estate agent. He had a, a weakness. He'd always uh, had an eye for women. Uh, he was a all-American football player, married a cheerleader, uh, but uh, he was not faithful. And he met a woman in a hot tub, and they wound up starting a relationship. And believe it or not, he convinced her to kill his wife. And uh, uh, the, he, uh, unfortunately, uh, the police arrested him after she confessed, arrested him immediately, and we had to rely totally on her uh, to develop a case against him. 
So I had to let her go while I negotiated with her attorney because he, of course, wanted the, the moon, right? And I said, no, she, this is a cold-blooded murder. She's going down for first-degree murder, uh, and she can go down alone unless she works with us. And she did, and we wound up getting both of them. Uh, and uh, um, a sad story, she wound up uh, dying of cancer, really never got out of prison. She was in halfway house when she died. Uh, uh, Mr. Hood, I think, is now paroled after that crime was in 92. Uh, he he was very, very fortunate not to get con- convicted of first-degree murder. He got convicted of soliciting first-degree murder and conspiracy to commit first-degree murder, but did not get convicted of first-degree murder, so had some parole eligibility. Uh, crimes like that, I mean, they're really, they, uh, you, you remember it, and you remember uh, how could people be so misdirected. Yeah, they're depraved. Yeah, uh, uh, I, I think we had a couple of unhappy marriages, and believe it or not, Paul, uh, the reason he didn't get divorced is uh, he didn't want to go through the reputational damage of a, a divorce and, and found murder the uh, appropriate alternative. Yeah. I mean, it's just mind-boggling when well, you think about those it. those of us on the outside looking in, thank you for representing us so well and for, for obviously... Um, doing that hard work uh, so we could sleep sleep well at night. It's knowing, been a great privilege. I've yeah. been so lucky to have all the fascinating jobs that I've had. Before we go, though, I want to talk about your 10 years mayor. It, it was a remarkable eight-year term, and um, again, great things accomplished. We grew the, the total city economy by a third in eight years. So to put that in perspective, it took 143 years to develop a $30 billion economy in eight years, we grew it from 30 to $40 billion. Uh, A lot of luck involved, a lot of um, hard work involved, uh, but it was a period of prosperity I, I doubt very seriously we'll ever see again. What's your favorite, what was your favorite part of being mayor? Uh, getting out and seeing some of the fascinating businesses that we have here. You know, I'll never forget my first tour out at Shriver Air Force Base. I walked into a room with about a dozen 20-year-old airmen. And Paul, they were operating the GPS system for the entire world right here from Colorado Springs. Wow. I don't think the vast, vast, vast majority of our citizens understand there's a group of airmen out there that are running the 23, 24, whatever it is now, maybe 26 satellites that operate the world's GPS system. Wow. Uh, and, that, and there, you know, you, you run across that kind of thing all the time, and I, I had no clue. Uh, that we played such an important role in, in certain things. And I think that is one of my favorite things. And to, you get to be their mayor. That's exactly right. What about What's the hardest part about being a mayor? Uh, things like uh, Club Q, uh, things like the uh, 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 Planned Parenthood shootings. Uh, I remember speaking at a funeral where uh, right in front of me were six open caskets of all related people who'd been gunned down by uh, a, a guy who was mad because he didn't get invited to a birthday party. A terrible, terrible instance of uh, domestic violence. Uh, now, frankly, I was probably better prepared for that kind of event um, than a lot of mayors would be who didn't have the background I I did. I remember after the Club Q, I was talking to uh, uh, Nora O'Donnell. On, we'd just gone off interview and she said, Mr. Southers, uh, you sound like 
this is not your first rodeo when it comes to uh, crimes like this. And I said, I wish I could tell you that it was, but it's not. Mm. And, uh, but they're very, very tough. Yeah. Very, very tough. Well, that's the way, I mean, it's always fascinating to me the way the Lord prepares us. You know, I believe in this theory called prevenient grace where he goes out ahead of us and prepares uh, us for things that we're going to face that we can't even imagine today. And certainly in your line of 35 years as a civil servant of sorts, uh, of course, sometime in private practice, but um, you have been well prepared. And um, your your memoir, All This I Saw and Part of It I Was, is a is a wonderful wonderful read i hope people go out and get it and uh, i hope you sell a million copies because it's a it's a great great read for people especially those in colorado springs who love this city well thank you paul i i do think it's I, i'm giving a presentation for the pioneers museum in april they'll they'll advertise that and i i'm going to talk a lot about what it was like to grow up in colorado springs and uh, it's such a huge part of my life well Thank you. And um, for those of you who are listening, I, the first part of our program, we talked about Mayor Souther's adoption. Uh, I mentioned this book that I did. It's called Chosen for Greatness, How Adoption Changes the World. I'm not trying to sell it. It's been out for a while, but I have 30 copies of it. If you would like a copy, if you have adoption in your family, or if you uh, know someone who is thinking about adopting or has adopted, this is a book that looks at 17 16, 17 well-known people who have been adopted, people like Steve Jobs and Nancy Reagan and Babe Ruth and um, Faith Hill. And uh, it's, it, I wrote it because I was trying to con- show our kids, our boys, that they can be successful not in spite of being adopted, but because they were chosen. Uh, they were chosen for greatness. And uh, if you send me an email, the first 30 people, I'll figure out a way. It's got to be local. I'm not going to pay postage to send you a book. Paul at paulbatura.com. I'll personalize it, and uh, it would be my privilege to pass that on to you. So, Mayor Southers, thank you again for joining us. Paul, delighted to be with you. Thanks for listening to What a Life with Paul Batura. Let him know what you're thinking. Follow Paul on Twitter at Paul Batura, or you can reach out to him on email at paul at paulbatura.com. Most importantly, live a life that emulates the admonition of the Apostle Paul, whose teachings are the inspiration for this show. Writing to believers at Philippi, Paul urged them, Brothers and sisters, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about such things. We'll see you next time on What a Life. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here here in america they took my assessment and they wanted me to change it i was like i'm not changing it they had to get rid of flint with in-depth interviews archival footage and never before seen personal records of the man behind the headlines i just felt like i was drowning flynn deliver the truth whatever the cost available now watch it today go to salemnow.com salemnow.com